0: The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Our sermon, our our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, I'll ask you to, if you're able to, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to go ahead and read all 11 verses. It's not that many. And uh, we're always blessed by the reading of God's Word. And then I'll pray. This is the Word of the Lord. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord. Except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another, excuse me, I'm sorry, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gift of being able to gather together in this building. Uh, Lord, to hear your word proclaimed, I just pray that uh, you would use me this morning to uh, be clear, um, to preach uh, your words. I just pray that the hearers this morning uh, would be moved, would be stirred, would be reminded, uh, encouraged and exhorted as uh, you see fit. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would be among us. And we know that you are as Jesus' emissary we thank you for this time in Jesus name Amen you may be seated well spiritual gifts are a point of fascination for many people there are numerous tests that you can take online that try to help you identify your spiritual gifts if you were around American evangelicalism in the 80s and 90s and even into the two thousands you probably remember these tests and inventories of gifts it was very popular Now, the gifts of the Spirit didn't just come into existence when these tests came around. They've been around since the Pentecost. But it wasn't until really the Pentecostal movement uh, that started right around 1900 when they began to get kind of more airtime, if you will. The Pentecostals' emphasis on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as evidenced by claims of miracles and claims of healings and speaking in tongues, brought the gifts kind of into a new light. Since then, much ink has been spilled on the gifts, and typically in the arena of debate about miraculous gifts, those in which there is no obvious blending of one's natural ability and supernatural abilities that the Holy Spirit provides. I know this is an open question for many of us. Are gifts like tongues and healings still active today? Now imagine if we had an email account, With the Apostle Paul okay we could send him emails about doctrine and church life and Christian living and he would reply I think many would say well make sure to ask Paul about tongues and prophecy and and miracles and healings are those things still happening today and in response I wouldn't be surprised if he opened up the the email or excuse me, I wouldn't be surprised if he open up this letter, this First Corinthians letter, and chapter 12 specifically selected copy, paste, put that in the email to us and hit send. I think he would try to redirect us from questions about these specific gifts towards what is the nature of the gifts. What are the context in which we use spiritual gifts? And what's their purpose? Before really getting down to the nitty-gritty about each particular gift. And that's really the context of our passage this morning. Chapter 12 marks the beginning of a new topic for Paul's response to the Corinthians, a response which actually goes all the way through the end of chapter 14. In verses 1 through 11 this morning, Paul's addressing a specific question that the Corinthians wrote him about. They wanted to know about spiritual things and most likely the use of tongues in the gathered assembly. And as you'll see, just like he would redirect us if we sent him an email, he redirects their attention to, what, to matters that are more important than the gifts themselves. Now this passage brings a number of questions to mind. Like, what are the nature of spiritual gifts? Who are the gifts for? Does every believer receive a spiritual gift? How do we discover our gifting? Are the gifts natural or supernatural? As we move through our passage today, I'm going to try to answer these questions for you. But I've got an outline as well, and I'll try to weave those questions into this outline. The first point in your outline is the nature of spiritual gifts. And we'll look at verses 1 through 3 for point 1 in your outline. And I'll read those verses for you now. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When we see now concerning, we know that Paul is changing topics. We also know that he's addressing a specific question that the Corinthians asked. Now, I think verses 2 and 3 might be a little confusing, uh, potentially, because we're not Corinthians. We, didn't, we don't have their experience, so I think a little bit of context behind verses 2 and 3 will, will help us. You have to remember that pagan worship in Corinth, sometime, which, which these many of these believers came out of, that sometimes in their worship it would result in ecstatic experiences, in making words both intelligible and unintelligible. And so I think what was happening is that these believers coming out of this, this pagan worship and that experience are worried that when they are speaking in tongues in the assembled church, that they might unknowingly be blaspheming Christ with what they're saying. So Paul assures them that, it, that if someone is speaking in the Spirit of God, it is not possible for them to blaspheme Jesus. Jesus and the Spirit are one. One. God cannot blaspheme himself. And so the opposite is true as well. The only way to not just say, but to actually mean Jesus is Lord is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they need not be worried that when speaking in tongues, they are cursing Jesus or making a false profession. Neither are possible when speaking in the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that not only enables us to say Jesus is Lord and mean it, but He also, the Holy Spirit, also helps us live that way. As I've said before from this pulpit, He's our called alongside strength provider. And the gifts that He gives us help us to live like Jesus is Lord. So I think that tees up the first question that we need to answer, and it's the first point in our outline, what are the nature of the spiritual gifts? Well, I think maybe just by looking at the word spiritual gifts, you can guess. There's two things that I want to highlight. They're spiritual and they're a gift. The first is that they relate to and come from the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word for spiritual gifts in verse 1 is literally that which pertains to the Spirit. We could say that spiritual gifts are gifts of the Spirit. Now we see that in verse we see that in verse 3 where no one can profess Jesus as Lord without the Spirit. We see it in verse 7 where the gifts are called a manifestation of the Spirit and we see it again in verse 11 where we see that all the gifts are empowered and given by the Holy Spirit. The nature and source of spiritual gifts, then, is not spirituality in some kind of vague sense. There's nothing vague about this, but they come directly from and they relate directly to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that spiritual gifting is completely supernatural. And again, one of the questions that I pose that some of you may be wondering or have thought about before, are the spiritual gifts natural or, or are they Supernatural? This isn't an either-or type category. This is a both-and. Yes, the spiritual gifts often tie back to natural ability. And yes, they are supernatural in the sense that by the Holy Spirit indwelling us and working through us, we are often capable of much more than we would be on our own. So that's the first thing. The spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And the second thing about the nature of the spiritual gifts is that they're gifts. That may seem obvious, but let's just stop for a moment and remember what a gift is. It's not something that's earned. It's not something that is a reward for righteous living. The gift might say something about the receiver, but it always says something about the giver. And this is the case, and in this case, the giver is God. What it tells us is that he is generous and kind and that he loves his people. I think on my drive over here this morning, I was thinking to myself, just kind of going through my head about what I was going to say this morning. The one thing I thought to myself is I want all of us to just for a moment stand in awe and wonder that the God of the universe would give us gifts to serve him. And love his people. It's amazing. So, the nature of the gifts is that they proceed from and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that they are gifts given by God at his good pleasure. So, that's the nature. But let's look at point two the context of spiritual gifts. And this is verses four through seven. I'll read those for you now. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Eliza and I, before we moved to Colorado twelve years ago, we lived in Pennsylvania with my employer, and uh, nearby was a, a place called Longwood Gardens. It's a beautiful kind of botanical, you know, garden, and at Christmas time, they would have a, as you can imagine, a massive. Display of of flowers and lights and this kind of thing, and so you would go from solarium to solarium, kind of around the grounds. This is, is a massive facility, probably a couple hundred acres, and in each solarium they would have, I mean, poinsettias that you could just, as far as the eye could see, just poinsettias lining everything, and in every display, and it was just red, 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 beautiful, and it was it was stunning. It was. Uh, there was something about it that was just uh, that would catch your eye. But I will say, after a while, you went from one building and oh my goodness, look at all these poinsettias. You go to the next building, well, there's more poinsettias, and then you go to the next building, and there were more poinsettias. And it started to, you know, after a while, the kind of the the um, beauty of it started wore off a little bit. I think what's interesting in that is there was no diversity in those poinsettias. They were initially beautiful, but their lack of diversity perhaps kind of wore, uh, that, that beauty sort of wore out a little after a little bit. Now, com- contrast that to when you've maybe walked past a garden. And maybe it's like a wildflower garden, and there's just kind of flowers sort of growing everywhere. And, you know, there's each individual flower is pretty, but it doesn't seem like they're really working together in unison. Contrast that to... A garden that I'm sure you've seen and walked past where perhaps there are wildflowers, but there's also cultivated flowers. And in, and in the front of the flower bed, there are lower flowers, perhaps like hostas. And then behind that, they have slightly taller flowers that are a different color. And then behind that, there's yet another, maybe there's shrubs. And all of these things, while different, are working in unison to provide. A kind of a beautiful visual experience for those that walk by. I think in a lot of ways, that's that type of that last flower garden, as, as amazing as Longwood Gardens was with its poinsettias everywhere and as visually stunning as it was, it's not the same kind of beauty as what you see when you walk past somebody's garden who's used a variety of flowers and, and shrubs to create a unified whole. That's what the church is like. Diverse, but still a cohesive whole. There is unity in the diversity of the church, like this garden, and more more critically, if we go back to our our passage, the trinity. D.A. Carson puts it this way, God loves diversity so much that when he sends a snowstorm, he makes every snowflake unique. The theme of unity and diversity may be what connects this whole, all of chapter 12 together. And I'll be here again next week talking about the rest of chapter 12, so we'll see more about that. But look at the context in which the gifts are placed here. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father. There is diversity in the Trinity, and yet unity in that all three persons of the Trinity are one God. And in a similar way, there is much diversity in the types of gifts. He says varieties of gifts, varieties of activities, varieties of services. So there's much diversity, but they are meant for and to work together for the one church. This theme, again, of unity and diversity is highlighted here in verses 4 through 6, but it runs throughout all of this chapter. That leads me to our next question. Still under point 2 in your outline, but to our next question. Who are the gifts for? Who are they intended for? Well, let's look at verse 7. And I think if you don't take anything else away from today, I want you to hear this verse, underline it, circle it, highlight it, draw hearts over the top of it. Whatever your preferred methodology for noting key verses is, do that here, okay? This is the main point of our passage this morning. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're going to camp out here for a moment and break down each phrase because I just think it's so critical. So let's look then at to each is given. That is each and every Christian, every member of the church universal of the body of Christ is given a gift of the Spirit. And in fact, that answers another question that we asked earlier. Does every believer receive a gift, a spiritual gift? And the answer is yes. Verse 7 tells us that. 1 Peter 4.10 also tells us that. The word that Paul chooses to use for gift here is charismata. It emphasizes the grace of God. That is, that each gift is a grace from God. Now, spiritual gifts back in verse 1, where it's translated spiritual gifts, that's actually a different Greek word. And it means relating to the Holy Spirit, as I said a moment ago. And that, that same word in verse 1 is used again in chapter 14 and verse 1. But in every other instance across chapters 12, 13, and 14, anytime you see spiritual gift, the Greek word is charismata. And again, that is from the root word of charis, which is the word that we use uh, for is grace. So it's the same. Same word, grace. And the point is this. These gifts are a grace. They are an unmerited favor. They can't be earned, and they are definitely not deserved. Some have called spiritual gifts grace gifts. And I really like that. I think that fits it well. And so there are different kinds of gifts. There are different kinds of gifts. I mean, not just as we're talking about the varieties, but stepping aside from kind of the varieties of gifts, think, think about the different kind of gifts that, that you might give. There's a toy that you give to a child at Christmas. We give that gift with basically no strings attached. There's very little expectation of what uh, that child might do with the gift. Perhaps we're hoping for a hug and a thank you, but that's about it. And there, But there are other gifts that come with much different expectations. A neighbor of ours just took possession of a beautiful 1957 Buick Roadmaster. Original interior, which is hard to believe, but it is original interior, original paint, um, beautiful paint. It was their grandfather's, and he had lovingly spent 40 years restoring this classic car and caring for it. And he offered it to them as a gift, and they accepted. Now, they could leave it out in the driveway, right? They've got a two car garage and they already have two cars, so they could just leave it out in the driveway. But it wouldn't take long for that gift to deteriorate. The sun would wreak havoc on the paint in the interior. The the freeze-thaw cycles of Colorado's uh, fall and spring and winter might damage the engine. And can you imagine what a Colorado hailstorm would do? All of that work, all of that care, gone in a matter of minutes. How discouraging would that be to their grandfather? So instead, they pulled it into their garage, and parked one of their own cars in the driveway. They're going to maintain this Buick Roadmaster and care for it just like their grandfather did, but there's no contract between them. It's just a simple understanding of the value and meaningfulness of the gift that they've been given. It's a gift which they must steward, because in a sense, it's really not completely theirs. They're just caretaker's. And that's what underlies Paul's concern here in the phrase manifestation of the Spirit. Remember that the Spirit's role is not to point to Himself, but to point to Jesus. He's not interested in getting the attention. The Spirit is about glorifying Jesus. And so it makes sense that the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are not for our own glory either, or even for His glory, but for the glory of Jesus and for his body, the church. These are gifts, frankly, that are given with expectations. And that brings us to the concluding phrase of verse 7, the common good. Here's the expectation. Spiritual gifts are for the common good, the edification, the building up of the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To build myself up? To help me feel good about myself? To raise my esteem in the eyes of other people? its not what he says. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the answer to point two in our outlines is this. The context of the spiritual gifts is the church. They are meant to build up the church. The the focus, the, the location even, Not physically necessarily, but the locus, if you will, of their use is the church. The beneficiary of the gifts is not the individual necessarily. Although Certainly there are benefits to the individual. But the primary beneficiary of the gifts is the church. The reason the Spirit gives gifts is for the church. Now let's look at the last point in our outline, point three. Varieties of spiritual gifts. The varieties of spiritual gifts. Verses 8 through 11. I'll read those for you now. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who, empower, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now we see uh, nine gifts in this passage. This passage and, and four others where spiritual gifts are listed, there are 20 unique gifts. 20 unique gifts. Now is that the sum total of all spiritual gifts? I think the answer to that is no. Paul's not trying to be exhaustive with this list or in any of the other passages in Romans 12 or in Ephesians 4 or later, as we'll see here in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not trying to be exhaustive. What he is trying to give us, though, is a representation of what the gifts are and what they look like. For example, hospitality, I think, is most certainly a spiritual gift. Some people have the ability to make you feel at home in their home. You immediately feel a comfort when you go to visit with them. And it doesn't relate to whether their house is beautiful or it's even picked up and clean. You just have this sense of being comfortable. That's a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit enables that. Not on any of Paul's lists, though. Now, as you think about these gifts, we've got these lists. And there's been attempts, I think, over time to sort of categorize. Well, these gifts go under this umbrella, and these gifts go here, and so on and so forth. And I came across three categories And I've tweaked them a little bit from uh, from Tim Keller. His categories were were prophecy gifts, priestly gifts, and kingly gifts. I'm going to change that. (laughs) And I'm going to make that teaching gifts, priestly gifts, and kingly gifts. So teaching gifts. Teaching gifts have to do with understanding and imparting truth to others. Okay. There's a number of gifts that fall underneath that. Now priestly gifts... Are a little bit different. Think about this as more like pastoring, more like shepherding. Priestly gifts are those that have to do with understanding and ministering to the needs of others. That's kind of a priestly gift. And then lastly, kingly gifts are those uh, that have to do with organizing and motivating. Think about the gift of administration. This is kind of a kingly gift. Um, Of course, as I said, there are other ways and titles to categorize, sort of, to broadly sort of bucket the spiritual gifts. If these are helpful to you, great. If they're not, discard them. There's nothing necessarily sort of uh, you know, biblical about it. We certainly don't want to superimpose our own kind of human thing, but sometimes it is helpful uh, to have things like this to, to help us to, rem- to remember. Um, one other comment on the gifts. I think perhaps there is a, a temptation to think about them as very distinct. Well, this gift is here. And it never overlaps with this gift over here. But that's actually not true. I think what, what you see quite often is more of, a, if you will, a Venn diagram, right, where there is some overlap between the gifts. And so I just want to, to make that point with you as well. We see that in our own lives and in, in others as well. All right. So I'm going to give you a brief description of each of the gifts that Paul um, lists here. Now, if you're interested in a more in-depth study on the spiritual gifts, and and really, frankly, other questions related to spiritual gifts, I would encourage you to pick up the book Spiritual Gifts. It's a creative title. Spiritual Gifts by Tom Schreiner. Um, An excellent book. It's only 172 pages. Very clearly written uh, by a reliably biblical scholar. All right. The first, the utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge. I'm actually going to put these two together because I think Paul is talking about the same thing here. The utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge. So some say that knowledge is academic knowledge of the scriptures and that wisdom is the application of that knowledge. Others would say that that these are supernatural words that that God gives to people which reveal things that wouldn't be known otherwise. But I think that just plain old teaching fits this best. Teaching is transmitting both knowledge and, and wisdom. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge and wisdom, most typically through the spoken word. And note that in every other list of spiritual gifts, Paul specifically mentions teaching. But here he doesn't. And that's kind of odd, right? If in all the other lists he, he would mention teaching but not here, and then we have these two gifts that kind of look and walk and talk like teaching. So I think this is what Paul is using another way to, to refer to teaching here. All right, faith. Faith. Faith is not saving faith. Every believer has saving faith. And it is a gift, right? It is the gift. But it is not a unique gift like the one listed here. So what kind of faith are we talking about here? It's the faith that God will do something that he has not explicitly promised in his word. It's the belief that God will do something not explicitly expressed in his word. Here's an example. Uh, after a long day of skiing, my son and I got back to my Forerunner. We got in, I turned the key, and literally nothing happened. Not even a click, no turnover, nothing. I tried again, nothing at all. I got a little concerned, so I take care of my vehicles. But if you guys have seen the Forerunner, it's not exactly new. It's been around a while. Uh, I pulled out the owner's manual, and I read. It actually addressed this exact problem. It said, press the gas all the way down. Then release, and then turn. It seemed odd to me. I was always taught, you'll flood the engine, but all right. So I did it. Turned the key, nothing. And it was right about this time that I started to stress out. And um, Samuel says, uh, hey, Daddy, why don't we just pray? Of course, son, we should pray. <laughs> why did I think of that? So Samuel, I said, son, why don't you pray? Because I could sense that he was, he was, it was his initiation. So He prayed. I turned the ignition and I kid you not, it started right up. I think that's a good example of what the gift of faith looks like. Healing. Now, this is the gift of miraculous healings, like like healing blindness and deafness and cancer. We read about this uh, through all of the New Testament. But it's interesting, though, as you survey the New Testament, healing appears to be a non permanent gift meaning that it's not something that somebody always has. One individual always has the gift of healing. It seems to come in certain circumstances and then go. For example, Paul was not able to heal himself. He had his thorn in the flesh, right? He was also not able to heal Timothy. He's told him to drink some wine for his stomach, right? So similarly today, we believe that God can and does miraculously heal people, but the ideal of a, a healing service or someone who is a healer with a permanent gift of healing, that is not biblical. Miracles. Sometimes miracles and healing are put together, but you could make the distinction that if healings relate to physical ailments, miracles have to do with the spiritual. Uh, for example, exorcism and, and other kind of uh, miracles. We believe that believers do not manifest an ongoing ability to do miracles. But like healings, we would say that God can and does do miracles, however infrequent they may be. Now, with both healings and miracles, what I would caution you on is a posture of always looking for the miraculous. My concern with that type of posture is that it discounts the miracle of God's Word to us. That type of posture says, yes, God, thank you for your direct revelation to me through your Word, But what I really want to see is a miracle, because then I'll know that you are all-powerful and mighty. We need to avoid that type of posture. Prophecy. Now, there are a number of ways to interpret what prophecy is, but it is actually one of kind of two primary points from chapter 14, uh, which Lars is going to preach on here in a few weeks. So I'm just going to set that aside, and we're going to come back to it then. Distinguishing between spirits, this is a gift like Paul exercised in Acts 16. This is when a slave girl who had an evil spirit followed Paul and Silas around, and she was crying out something that you might think was good. She said, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It sounds great, but Paul discerned that the spirit in her was evil and commanded it to come out. He had the gift, the ability to discern between the spirits. Tongues. Tongues are languages. We might say that to us they're foreign foreign languages, but they're languages. The Greek word used here is the same Greek word that's used in Acts 2. That's when the church spoke in languages they didn't know. And then Jews who lived in Jerusalem, who were from many other nations were drawn to this commotion in this this house or this building where the believers were, and they were hearing things in their own tongue, in their own language. It's the same word that that was used. Now, along with prophecy, there's been a lot of debate about this gift. What is it? Is it still going today? And we're going to go over this in depth in chapter 14. So at this point, I'll just say that very good biblical scholars disagree... (laughs) about what tongues were in Corinth and whether they continue today. Again, Lars is going to spend a lot of time on this in chapter 14, so we'll just cover, this, cover it that, uh, this at that point. And then lastly, interpretation of tongues, pretty straightforward. This is the gift of understanding what others who are speaking in tongues are saying and then the ability to then share that with others. Now these are wonderful gifts by an, uh, given by an even more wonderful giver. God Almighty. And they are just a sampling, <clears throat> excuse me, nine of the 20 that the Bible explicitly states. But certainly there are many more. And you can see the diversity of the gifts mentioned here, but also the unity in the aim of building up the church. Some are teaching, some are priestly, some are kingly, but all are for the common good. So as we turn to our uh, conclusion today, we've looked at The nature of the gifts, the context of the gifts, the variety of the gifts. But let's address one more question. How do we discover our gift? About 2005, I did an online questionnaire about spiritual gifts. I'm sure many of you have done them, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's sermon. And the idea is to help you identify how God has gifted you. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even tell you now what those results were, but I went to my pastor and I told him about the test and the results, and his response went something like this. That's great, Ben. Thank you for taking this so seriously. I think I see some of those things in you, but what we really need right now are helpers in Iwana. And so that's what I did. I went and helped in Iwana, And I'll never forget that because it spoke an important truth to my heart. The discovery of gifts is not an end unto itself. Certainly it is helpful, but it's while you serve that you discover what energizes you and what you are able to do, what God has made you, has gifted you to do. So first off, we discover our gifts by serving the church, by serving one another. And then the second way that we discover our gifts is by what other believers see in us. Sometimes, <clears throat> and that often comes through positive affirmation. Will, I see in you the gift of giving. We see this in each other, and we, we encourage each other with that type of gift. But sometimes, we don't see very clearly about ourselves, and we actually need to listen to others. It's like the, the kid who's... who's five foot six, and he thinks he's going to play in the NBA. It's like, son, I appreciate your dream, but that ain't happening. It could be said the same of of someone who thinks that they are meant to be up front leading worship, but they can't carry a tune. Romans 12.3 reminds us that we should be clear-headed and rational as we think about ourselves, and we should listen to others. This is what Romans twelve three says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there's, as, it, as it relates to the gifts, so we've talked about how we could discover our gift, but as it relates to the gifts, I think there's kind of two potential traps that we could fall into. One is achievement, and the other is comparison. I'm going to start with comparison. We are so prone to compare ourselves to others. It, it, it's just hardwired in us. It's in our sin nature. It, it's a, it really is a pride-based response. It's rooted in the system in the world. It's in our flesh. How do I... Is, she, is he better than me? Am I better than him? We rack and stack Everything. That's how the world evaluates and values people, and, and frankly, all too often, it's how we, it's how people, including ourselves, make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We say, I'm not great, but at least I'm better than that guy. We do that all the time. Comparison can lead to the pride of feeling superior, but there's a flip side to that as well. And it's also related to pride. Comparison can also lead us to kind of checking out. I don't have anything to offer. There's nothing that I'm able to do that's needed here. Or the things that I'm good at aren't valuable, so it doesn't matter, and I'm out. But that's not God's system of evaluation. He doesn't say, I love this one more than I love that one. He knows the gifts are given. They're not earned. He says, They are a reflection of your value. God is concerned not with the gifts, but with our character and how we love him and love others. God is concerned with how we use what he has given us, even if it's not very much at all. That's what matters to him. So we need to learn to be content with how God has made us and how he has gifted us. In fact, God has said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. While each are equal in value before God, we are not equal in our gifting. The sooner that we can be content with what God has assigned to us, the sooner we will be free to serve without restraint or delusion. But how do we move from comparison to contentment? How do we make that jump? We remember the gospel. The gospel reminds us that there is nothing that we can bring to earn value in God's kingdom. The gospel reminds us that our identity is not in our gifts, but in our giver. He gave us the ultimate gift, himself on the cross, that we might live and be content, simply knowing that we are his. It's been said, it's not who you are, it's whose you are, that matters. So comparison is an easy trap to fall into, but so is achievement. We're accustomed to receiving gifts for an achievement or a milestone like a birthday or a graduation or retirement or getting married or having a baby. Even at Christmas, only good boys and girls receive gifts. So we come to expect that when we do this or that, we get gifts, There's an expectation or sense of entitlement to many of the gifts that we receive. We are prone to use that same mentality in the church. It may be subtle like nursing a grudge, that you didn't get an opportunity to serve or that your ministry idea wasn't acted upon. But the achievement mentality that we all bring into the church doesn't have a place here. It's from outside God's system. So how can we address this mentality? Well, let's look at verse 11 again. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God gives as he wills. And he doesn't tie your gifting back to what you did or didn't do. It's simply a matter of his sovereign choice. What we think we deserve, we really don't. Even a beautiful day, like today like yesterday is a gift from God I recently played golf with a friend who loves Jesus and at least 3 or 4 times over the course of the afternoon he said he just just like this he said what a gift what a gift and it really struck me every day is an undeserved gift from God but let's not stop there did you choose your parents did you choose where you were born Did you choose to be born during this time in history? Let's make it personal. Right now, where you sit, have you supplied the air that you are breathing right now? Here's my point there's a a, a givenness, a givenness to all of life. We didn't and can't cause any of those things that I mentioned the givenness of life tells us that we don't deserve anything that we have, even the breath that we breathe. All of it is truly an undeserved gift from God. So, if we battle comparison by remembering our our identity is not in our gifting but in Christ, the way we battle the achievement mentality that seeps into our lives is by giving thanks. We give thanks to God for the givenness of all that we have, even our breath. And so let's consider one last gift this morning. It's more stunning than any other gift we receive. It's more miraculous than any healing, miracle, or tongue. It's more unearned, undeserved, and freer than any other gift we have received. What we deserve and what we have earned is death. Our sin is rebellion against God. And not just, here's the thing that's so awful. And not a God who's angry, not a God who's pernicious, not a God who strikes down without cause. This is rebellion against a God who cares for us, who loves us, who provides for us. But we shake our puny fists at him and say, Not your will, but my will be done. That rebellion brings the penalty of death. And no truly sovereign ruler, lest you think that God is bad because he punishes evil. Think about this for a moment. No truly sovereign ruler can allow rebels to go without justice. Ephesians 2.1 says that there is not just a physical death that we will suffer because of sin, but spiritual death as well. Spiritual death looks like selfishness and pride. It looks like insecurity and hate. It's greedy. It seeks pleasure continually. Spiritual death cannot be overcome on our own. Something dead is only able to stay dead. It cannot make itself alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses, gave us his greatest gift greater than any spiritual gift He gave us Himself. He came in the person of Jesus and on the cross, took the penalty of sin, which is death. Now all who confess their sin and believe and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be given the gift of eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, bringing the dead to life, is greater than any miracle, than any miraculous gift. That a dead person would be brought brought to new life, not back to their old life, but to a new life. It is a gift more free and undeserved than any other gift. If you already confess that Jesus is Lord, remember that you only do so because of his kindness and mercy to you. And go forth today in gratitude for the gift of Jesus. But if you do not confess Jesus is Lord, then I urge you to repent of your rebellion against God. He's been so kind and generous to you. Do not spurn his kindness by living for yourself. Repent and confess that Jesus is Lord today. It is the greatest gift that you will ever receive. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the gift of Your Son, Jesus. Lord, we're in awe, certainly, of the spiritual gifts that You give us, but we stand in even greater awe of the gift of eternal life through Your Son, Jesus. And we give You praise for Him this morning. Let it be fuel to motivate us to serve one another and to use the gifts that You've given us to serve Your church and you. Lord, bless this day by the power of your Son's name. Amen.